I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the final episode of U2Y, our epilogue. I wanted to take some time at the beginning of this episode just to, first of all, thank everybody for the wonderful response to the show, for your feedback, for your questions. It's been really nice to see how people have been um, engaging with these stories and enjoying our chats. This is essentially an independent broadcast put together by myself with my father, Steve, of course. So it means a lot to us that you've stayed with us. It would mean even more if you were able to share our show with other people, maybe bring some more listeners on board. Word of mouth has been everything for this show. So we are eternally grateful for you listening and sharing so far. I thought it was good maybe to give you a sense of why we did this. After all, the show is called U2Y. So this whole thing actually began in 2020 in the earlier stages of the pandemic. And one thing I really did not want to do was date it to that time or bring in the idea of lockdown and pandemic and COVID into the conversation. I wanted wanted to keep that very separate from it. And I had been thinking for some time about the idea of trying to capture some of Steve's story about his time at U2. This was motivated by the fact that I was going through a lot of his archive at the time as we were trying to do some um, organizing on my father's quite significant archive of his personal artifacts, um, his own collection of ephemera, and then obviously bits and pieces of his work, his, his design work over the last 50 odd years. And then I realized that I have a very unique perspective on this in the sense that I can come at it in a perhaps more gentle way and help Steve through his story 
in a tone that would be different if he was to be interviewed in a more clinical setting or, for example, in a presentation or um, an interview with a, with a newspaper or a publication. So in 2020, um, I think it was maybe April, we, we began chatting. We were remote at the time. They were long form, unedited conversations that very quickly struck me as being really interesting. And in that, I think April, May, perhaps June period, we we spoke about Steve's earliest foray into design, which we actually excluded from the final um, show because we felt it was um, a little bit too off the beaten track. I may include it again at another stage. But we had Boy October War done. And then a significant amount of time passed just based on life getting in the way and getting our, our focuses being put on different things. So we came back to it then in 2022. So there was a significant period of time. And actually the period of time between beginning and finishing was really helpful because we we were able to come back at it with a really clear focus and idea of what it was meant to be. Um, I think it started as an experiment, but we came back to finish it with a, with a very particular idea and so I it was myself who really wanted to define in and the out for our story the beginning and the end I knew straight away that we would not do the full catalogue for various reasons mostly practical to do that many albums and offshoots would take forever and frankly I saw it as an interesting thing to block off a certain period that I felt defined what we wanted to talk about perfectly. So to go from boy to pop may seem arbitrary, but really to me, the post-pop era, not to diminish it because it has its own interesting story. I just felt that uh, by that time, you know, I think ultimately, um, I'll probably talk about this with Steve himself now in a moment, but it's hard to keep delivering the goods the way that they were doing from 1980 to 1997, 98. Because in some ways, the band are still in the process of a grand discovery. And therefore, Steve is also in his own phase of discovery. And then alongside Sean from from the 1990 period, that the band really kind of lands into themselves when all that you can't leave behind comes comes around. It feels like a it feels like almost like a circle is complete. And it's not that what comes next is less interesting. I just think it's it's not as potent as the first um you know, the first portion of their career. It just tells it allows us to tell our story in a very effective way. Now, some of you may disagree with that and you may be disappointed that we're not going to go forth. I apologize. I I, um, I hear you. Um, we're not going to do it. We Maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of the later half of his career in brief in this episode. And I think starting this show, I wasn't sure what my voice was going to be. I, ne- I didn't particularly want to involve myself emotionally in this, but I think... The truth is that 
I wanted to fill out my father's story to help me with some of my own history because I was born in 1985 and I do have a very strong sense of U2's existence in my memory. But I had I have said to people often that my father... All right, here's the final conversation between myself and my father. Which is his job in a very straightforward manner. Almost in a, in, almost in a working class. He got up every day at the same time, half six, he was on the bus at the same time every day. You know, he, he ran, he existed very much in this sort of ritualistic, almost almost institutionalized nature. Um, he worked his job as much because he had to work his job to provide and survive as much as it was also his love. He was obsessed with design and remains so. And I just find that interesting growing, you know, having grown up in, in this household that I never felt like my father was any different to, to, you know, the parents of my friends who had more traditional jobs, perhaps, or, or identifiable roles. And as has kind of been alluded to as well, like my, you know, my father, we weren't, we weren't rich we weren't rock stars we didn't have a lifestyle that was different like he wasn't a f you know there was an overall kind of humility to everything that was very important for me as a life lesson and i think things like ego humility modesty are really complex and interesting emotions or experiences and it's been it's been quite a thrill to kind of explore how they're connected to this long relationship between you two and my father. And so much of who I am now as a person, obviously, but also as an artist myself is, is somewhat learned from how my father conducted himself. So there was definitely a curiosity, a personal, possibly even selfish curiosity about where I come from. And similarly, my brother um, is also is also an exceptional graphic designer himself, and he followed much more closely in my father's footsteps. And I think we were both very privileged and fortunate to have that kind of guidance, um, and a guidance that brought a level-headedness to our our own careers. But the single most important thing about all of this is that this is cultural history that if it is not told, they disappear. So I did feel some kind of sense of duty to just tell these stories because you know what? They're interesting. And if we don't tell them, then who will? With that in mind, this is the final chapter, the epilogue. A reminder that the store is now open, stephenaverill.com forward slash store for limited edition prints. This is the end. My only friend, the end. You were a big fan of The Doors, yes. weren't you? A big fan of the early stuff, yeah. And then what happened? 
I began to sort of read a lot more about Jim Morrison and wasn't as seemed a bit of a strange, not particularly nice character at times, but um, I still like to listen to them. I still like them. In fact, um, I have one of the um, early live demo albums where they do The End and Gloria, which is what we used to finish our early set with. I suppose they were one of the first kind of... uh... I guess mainstream pop rock bands that also were representing a counterculture that made it across the Atlantic to to these these shores. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly they 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 um you know, they had hit singles as well as um albums that were kind of critically recognized. All righty. Well, what we're doing here, I guess, is a bit of a look back over our conversations as well as a look forward beyond our conversations in terms of the the, the later half of your career. So we'll just start with a broad question of um, how how do you feel? How how did it feel? How does it feel? Well, I suppose it was um, uh, it made me rethink and relook at a lot of the aspects of what we were doing. Um, going back then, it sort of makes you sort of look at the covers and look at them in a different way because uh, you're, you're questioning, um, trying to remember a lot of things that, that went on at that time, but um, in a very positive way. I mean, it was good to... to um, be reminded of the work that was done. I feel like for a lot of people, retirement is this grand anticlimactic thing. Like, there's no big fireworks display and a sudden retrospective of all the things you've done. And I know you were careful when you retired to not really say that you had retired, but rather were entering, entering into a period of reinvention which I think is a nice descriptor. But I suppose there is this sensation that, you know, particularly talking about your work with you 2 that you're you're stepping off this juggernaut train and the train keeps going. You're, you're, you're standing at the station and it's off on its journey. Like that, that's not that you were abandoned, but it's, um yeah, again, I think it's kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because um, you know, I mean, as as you know, I'm open to doing a certain amount of work and and with certain clients, and uh, it's it's um, unless you sort of are out there touting for work and saying you're out there, it, you tend not to get an awful lot of people coming to you looking to to commission you to do work. So it's generally speaking, people who I've worked with in the past that are that are reaching out to to um, do some work. I mean, very few uh, upcoming new bands are actually um, trying to, to to do that. And that's probably uh, inevitable in, in, as things move on and you move out of the spotlight to a degree. Well, I think it's always a risk that when you do announce retirement that people kind of move on, I suppose, even though, again, you're, you're still working and still excited about working. But uh, maybe this is a good place once again to remind people that you did stop working for U2 in 2015 and that the design work has been mostly handled I guess by by Sean McGrath and Gavin Friday also um, working as a creative director since then. Yeah yeah they they, they have taken that role very much so and I did speak to uh, the management um, not necessarily the band but at the time I did retire and said if there was anything that they felt that uh, I would be brought in as a consultant or whatever. I was happy to do it, but of course, um, the 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 uh, means of communication is kind of very much channeled. So you don't really hear 
of situations where you could possibly um, get involved and say this is something I could definitely um, be involved with. So you just really um, step back from the whole thing then. There's no um, um, feeling that you're being thrown out, thrown out or, you know, possibly if I wanted to do something, I could go in and do it. I mean, there were one or two people have approached me since to say, well, look, if, if um, anything uh, came up, uh, could we uh, involve you in some kind of YouTube-related project? Um, and, of course, I'm open to suggestion and see what happens. So you are still taking on little pieces of work here and there and, from what I can tell, seemingly motivated by an interesting band or, you know, you're not necessarily motivated by the money. It's more about an intrigue or, an, or a connection to, like, an exciting band. Or Yeah, and, and, and what, what, is, what is kind of interesting uh, for me, I mean, I suppose on, on a uh, financial terms, you're not dealing with the same kind of... Uh, uh, worldwide super act that you two are. You're dealing uh, with a lot of newer, younger, up-and-coming bands. And it means um, since that I kind of left a formal company, you can give time and effort into something that um, is not fin- as financially rewarding, but it's definitely as rewarding in terms of um, creativity. Well, if it's okay to, to say as well that it feels like the last maybe five, ten years of your official career, that it seemed like you had to take on more work from, you know, non, from non-musical projects, more maybe some product-based commercial work uh, due to the, just due to the nature of the industry, I suppose. No, no, a lot, a lot of it was very much fun, fundamental. I mean, the, the client base was a lot less to do with the entertainment industry and a lot more to do with just a broader sweep of clients um, and, and clients that were coming back to the company on a very regular basis for work. Um, and I don't think any of us as designers felt fulfilled by what was going on there. I mean, you know, the, the latter things that we did uh, in the company Aside from you two, where the things like the script and things like that, working on those, which was a very enjoyable uh, period of time. And again, I stopped doing that when when I left the company. Well, maybe in some kind of poetic way, you kind of went full circle and ended up back where you started to a degree. You know, you you started your career in commercial art and moved away from that, and somewhat ended back up there. And again, it's just the sign of the industry that was changing again, and budgets were shrinking. Digital artwork was becoming the primary dominant um landscape yeah yeah i mean it's 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 um pretty much <clears throat> across the board i mean it's quite um interesting to see um anton corban's uh most recent uh documentary on hypnosis you know i mean and they were talking at, at the height of their career of like a hundred thousand for for a project for do to do an album cover or whatever it is i mean those days are long gone for everybody i don't think uh, even they would be any command anywhere near that that kind of money. I well, there, there, there. That's the age when, in 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 many ways, the visual campaign had the power to make or break a a release, um, regardless of you know who you are, how big the album is. Like I think having its presentation um, so well cooked as they would have been on those big campaigns, and the money was sunk into the. You know the the money was sunk into the artistry of 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 the creation of those campaigns, and now it seems to be more about like the delivery of of the so called campaigns. Like it's about trying to get them on as many media um, av- avenues and outlets as possible. That's the consideration rather than the artwork itself. Yeah, and there's there was definitely a point where the um, 
the process changed in that uh, I did notice that the marketing of an album, the marketing department, were having more of a say in what actually an album could be or, or, or would be than the creative side of the of the industry were saying. You know, I mean, I've had, I've had situations where we have designed a cover that is um, something that myself and the band and everybody was very proud of. I had to have it shot down by the marketing department who insisted that a, a picture of the band would go on the cover rather than any creative work. So plus the fact things like every single advert you saw after that, every single poster was essentially the same image over and over again as if that the public really didn't have the the imagination to sort of see that this is a, a tangent from uh, a particular campaign, not just the same the reproduction of the same image. I'm wondering then also, were you ready to retire? Like, did you want to retire? Yes, I, I definitely uh, felt, you know, I had been then, at that point, I had been working in the industry for 40 years. Um, as you say, the, and the, the, the kind of work we were getting at that point in time was not particularly stimulating creatively. It, it was uh, a lot to do with the finances. I and mean, even in my last years um, with the companies, um, one of the reasons I had to step back a little bit with the U2 situation was you had to keep a company running. You had to finance it. You had to go out and get work. So a lot of your day or a lot of time was often spent in meeting new clients and trying to find new avenues of work. Um, so you can't just simply sit at a desk and concentrate entirely on on. So would it then be fair to talk about your post-pop era being um, also changed up in terms of the path of communication after Paul McGuinness uh, leaves and maybe you have a scenario where you have too many cooks or too many voices? Yeah, I think I, I have mentioned in that, you know, the sort of tipping point came uh, for me in Songs of Innocence and, and, and having a lot of late night conference calls, which never got anywhere because there was at one particular point, 12 or more people on the call and everybody feeling that they had to make a comment or they had to say something that was not, not necessarily going anywhere. It was just simply they felt they need to make a comment. And then um, and this kind of way of working is more familiar to me in terms of the way that, say, marketing works generally or advertising works generally. You can really feel by what you're telling me that it lost the personal touch. Uh, that's very difficult because you've lost that immediate contact with the, with the artist that you, that you need to have. And again, you know, going back to so that hypnosis document, you can see the same process happened with with um, the uh, hypnosis and and Wings and Paul McCartney and all the people that they worked with, like Pink Floyd. They, that was a direct conversation they were having. Well, I think that when you find yourself in a situation where you're on a conference call with too many people, that's one thing to handle, but it's it's a particularly tough concept when when you've been working an entirely different way for, as you say, the guts of, at that point, whatever, 30, 35 years. Yeah. Suddenly the landscape changes and then you have to kind of move with that. And that may not always be conducive to making the best work. No, no, it's not. And, and uh, you know, you, 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 you have... We have noted that uh, in, in previous times, uh, the the album covers that are the ones that made it to the to print and became the covers for the albums were points where everybody in initially in that circle of people that were viewing it could could say yes, this is this is something that I'm ha- very happy to go with. It may not have been the final direction if you'd gone or pushed it a different way with a different person, 
but it was the point where everybody felt, you know, us as the designers, them as the band uh, and the management could say, yeah, this is really good. We really like what's what's happening here. Do you, do you feel like, and I'm going to say they just as in, as in you two, and that can mean the four of them and whoever else would have, would have been factored into these decisions. But you, do you, do you feel that they slightly lost sight of, of how they wanted to be seen or how they wanted to appear statically in terms of their design choices? Do you think that they kind of, and and I'm not saying that in a way that places like any kind of derogatory sentiment, I think that it is, as I said, maybe in, in another episode, kind of an impossible uh, reality to maintain such an astute um, design sensibility for such a long time. And, and and for things to get more difficult is an inevitability. I'm just wondering, did you feel that inevitability kind of coming true? Yeah, I think I possibly did. I mean, I think that as, as a band, um, when you start out, you know, you're trying to be the best band in Dublin and the best band in Ireland and the best band in the UK and the best band in America and the best band in the world. And they were taking these stages and, go- and going through them. But I think once they had reached a level of success, um, they began, there was a much of a focus about getting there. When you're there, your viewpoint changes and you start to wonder what, um, how you're perceived to other people who aren't necessarily fans. So you start to experiment uh, both musically and design with other possible avenues, which may or may not be um, something that really enhances what the band is doing. Do you think that there then comes a point in an artist's career that has quite a long staying power that a sense of self-awareness begins to creep in or even perhaps like a debilitating self-awareness that that leads to second guessing or self-doubt or yeah most definitely you know with any band i mean any band that i've worked with you you you, there's a certain point where you start to look inwards rather than outwards you start to sort of second guess yourself and whether what you were doing is right and the right way to go with it um uh, rather than sort of saying well this is an image that i've created and i need to uh, expand that image so that it really makes a point um that ties in with my music to the graphics and i think any artist you look at any major is probably goes through a stage where that happens. Sometimes you can recapture that um, and get back to basics and, and make a change. But uh, in a lot of cases, what happened, the way that happens is that the, the record label or the, or the management or the band themselves decide to go with a different design team. They think that will bring a different vision to what they have. But in fact, it doesn't always work because it's, it's, it's the, the band themselves who are looking at everything and then not really seeing themselves in, the, in a different way. Well, let's not forget that the Octone Baby era came from a moment of serious reflection and perhaps, again, self-doubt and that they allowed themselves that um, chance to reflect and evolve. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Was there ever a time where you, as the design team or art director or just confidant of the band, suggested that they maybe try somewhere else for a design? Or did you know of other alternatives being made by other companies? We know there was other album covers being done by other design teams at various points in the later albums. And I did, in fact, at one point, by accident, see a portfolio of, of album cover designs done by a UK, London-based company, which I really felt were very well designed, but totally off. You know, they were wrong for, for, for what you Well, we've heard did. this story before, and we all know how yeah. that turns out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we've often spoken about this uh, with them. and never, Most bands create a visual language. If you put all the, the Beatles uh, album covers together, um, th- there is a certain sense of, an, of a continuing uh, theme that they have, even though quite often a lot of them are done by different people. The same would be true largely of the Rolling Stones. It's only really uh, one or two bands like Depeche Mode in recent times, like Hypnosis and Pink Floyd, where there is this um, thought process going on, a continuing thought process of how to develop that image. And often it's by doing something totally different than you would normally expect. Yeah. Well, I think the reason I asked you that question is because I have a sense that there was such a level of trust that if you had... I imagine if you ever felt you know what, this isn't working. I think you should go somewhere else that you would have meant that sincerely and they would have listened to you and trusted that 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 voice that you had. So it's interesting that it never came to that. And I think you kind of ha- highlight the reasons why is because you had this infrastructure that just really, you know, worked. And not every sleeve was a an award-winning sleeve, but the, the pipeline was dependable and successful. And yeah. I... I and the other point you raised there that I think just as we're kind of having this casual conversation would, would be for the next U2 album, what I would love to see would be like a complete rope pull on the design um, uh, tactics and say, we're not going to use anyone we've used before. Forget whoever. And, and you know, maybe it's like we're going to employ uh, Barnbrook or... Um, Russell Mills or somebody and maybe it's a known designer who brings their voice stronger voice to to the to the next sleeve assuming there will be one you know and just like um, indulge in that like be bold be bold in their decision rather than kind of staying in the in the in, within the constraints of um, the current pipeline well yeah there's all that possibly all, always exists um but i suppose there's always a certain nervousness that when you uh, go with somebody else you don't necessarily have the same kind of relationship but it's possible that it it's it is the best thing to do is to go with somebody that you don't have a relationship with and well, let them you two have always had this uh they've always had this th- kind of thirst for experimentation and I think you could see it as a as a grand experiment, you know, just yeah. just say, well, what's the worst that can happen? We can get a bunch of sleeves that we don't feel works for us. And then we go back to we go back to Sean and Gavin and whoever else and we stick to our go back to the old, older pipeline. Well, it's probably more likely that, that if that situation arose, that they would continue their existing relationship, but at the same time have tandem relationships with other people as well. Just to, And that did happen to a degree. Um around the, um, the the later albums when other people were brought in as creative uh, directors and things like that. 
Can you remember any times in the post-1997 era where you felt like maybe things were about to change or the relationship was about to end or go a different path? There are times, yes, definitely. There was one particular time when we were all uh, called to a meeting in, in, in France and uh, one person um, decided, stood up and said that they could do everything. They could get rid of the stylists, the designers, the whole thing, and, and they could do the whole thing themselves with a team of people they would put together. Um, and that could have easily have, have been a... A, a bridge that, that they'd gone across and said, well, that's fine, let's, let's try that and let's see what happens. But in fact, they, they, they kind of didn't do that. They thought that, you know, that would change a lot of the internal dynamic of, of the working relationship. So they didn't do that. So, and how about then just any memories in general, like trips or? Again, I, you know, I attended uh, a lot of photo sessions in London and uh, I went to um, Portugal uh, with the session. They were all extremely, uh, interesting and exciting times i mean to 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 work closely with anton and the band and again you you we're back to a different that scenario where it's essentially the band anton anton's assistant and, and the stylist and uh, people that were involved and and myself and that's where the, the 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 core of that creativity came from and that was back to the way we worked almost from day one so i i really um enjoyed those sessions as much as I enjoyed everything else, but um, it, it's it's you know a difficult time to to I don't think the cover of of um, how to dismantle atomic bomb is probably a particularly wonderful uh, cover. And uh, why would you say that? Uh, it, it's really just the guy sitting in front of a you know a building. Well, I think it's a very successful design when you look at it strictly from a graphic design point of view, but. That's almost the problem is that it is a well-designed cover. And to me, it's it's maybe missing um, the story that, that or the sense of discovery or the enigma that was present in the previous leaves. But again, it's it's from a design point of view, it's very effective because you have the title Atomic Bomb and you have these these red bar, almost militaristic design motifs. And then you obviously have the kind of target um, and the stage set up feeding back into it. And coincidentally, I was just looking at the Vertigo tour program, which really is, is a nice piece of design. It really expands on, on the aesthetic really well. And from the point of view of this podcast, maybe just a little bit less interesting to talk about. Less of a story, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you, you have a very provocative title. Um, I think that probably, um, if you look at the design work done around, around that time, um, that uh, the CD special box, you know, that Sean had put together with with um, typography and various other graphics, is probably a lot more exciting than the actual album cover is. Uh, you know, it has a lot more interesting aspects to it. Well, yeah, when you look at those special editions, it kind of feeds into like the, the simplicity of it and, and, and just, again, the pure design of it is really good. And I, I don't mean to speak about any of these records um, disparagingly. No, neither would I. I think that they were they were what they were at the time and, and they're up. I think that um, there may well be, uh, in my own mind, a kind of um, thinking probably at the moment is to become in a sense um more punk in its attitude to the graphics and everything else but whether you can do that with a even somebody 
who's been around with the band for a long time, you, you uh, to punk to really work, it needs to be uh, fresh and 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 but not a, re- a repeat of what punk was back in the seventies. Yeah, you see, that very idea kind of makes my skin crawl. I, I think to declare yourself as punk or to pursue so-called punk rock attitude. It's kind of an impossible thing. It's a fallacy, you know. Punk is, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a state of mind. It's a, it's a way of li- living and a way of being, and it's a, it's a middle finger to sort of technical ability or pr- technical prowess or. <clears throat> it's very much an attitude of mind. You know, it's boiling things down to their essence, and it's all about energy, attitude, and eth- ethos. But it's a hard thing to synthesize or fake. Yeah, well, it comes down to that term uh, necessity is the mother of invention because you you have to find a way to express what you're doing, but you don't have the budgets or the money or the so you do find a way to do it. You do find a way to create um, something that's exciting and visually strong without having to sort of draw back into the past. Yeah, or- and I, I mean, I think just for the purposes of our conversation, let's be clear that we can talk about punk and. In just really the the aesthetic, the DIY approach to creativity and forgetting the kind of social, political side, because you know I don't think you can be the biggest band in the world and be a punk band. I mean, as much as you might like to. And of course, now it's very difficult because, as you say, uh, we're dominated by computers now. For instance, if we're doing a a band shoot, you start to sort of see the situation where. Um, heads and bodies and things are moved around to create the, the you know the most perfect picture well exactly and we do talk a bit in the show about how you you were able to pick out maybe the images here and there that had an energy even though they were imperfect maybe it's a blurry shot or some someone's obscured or they're not perfectly featured but those shots inherently carry more energy and say a lot more than the perfectly photoshopped cropped edited um glossy magazine cover shot and I do think as well with the same thought in mind that how, like how do you sit down in 2023 or 2024 or whatever to design a cover for the biggest band in the world and not feel the complete immense weight of that very thing and that's what you I don't think that you really had that in the first 10 or so years of the band that you weren't feeling the pressure of what they had become and the kind of global stratospheric nature of who they were becoming and maybe even how precarious a situation that becomes to avoid you know biting off your own tail or swallowing swallowing your own head yeah well that's it i mean and and you're you're continually dealing with a situation where i mean i've had conversations with them at times where you um are you an artist that can accept the fact that um, you are no longer uh, twenty years old, therefore visually you don't look like you're you're, you're that age, and you you pick up a uh, a magazine these days like Vive La Rock, which is essentially a hard rock um, punk rock uh, magazine talking about people in, and you're now looking at people who are in their sixties trying to look like they look in nineteen seventy. Yeah, I mean, I think that opens up again a whole other conversation. Um, one that we, we we just can't have because it's it's so complex, which is just you know how how um, how hard it is to kind of grow old uh, in in a, in, a, in a place of notoriety or fame, um, particularly if it's connected to something as as um, as vain you know vain or or opt- optically scrutinized as rock and roll, you know. 
Yeah. I mean, and also it would have to be said that, you know, I am no longer in that um, situation of working directly with them. So I don't know what their thought processes are. But, I mean, there are worries I've seen from certain fan sites that, that the the shows in the sphere in Vegas will overwhelm the identity of the band. It becomes about the venue rather than the band or the music. Yeah, I think I agree with that um, sentiment, except for the fact that I feel like the potential for that Zoo Ropa Octong era to come to step up into that landscape is is exciting. Yeah, no, it's definitely exciting. I mean, that's why they're doing it because it's new technology and it's and it's pushing the boundaries of what can happen in it. So therefore, it's a very valid move for them, and very few people can pull it off. And they are certainly one of the few that have managed to make a stadium rock show work and feel as intimate as it possibly can. I mean, the last tour was definitely managed to bring you into the inside of the whole scheme of what they were doing rather than some show, earlier shows that I've seen. I think it's pretty admirable that they're still finding ways to push the envelope in a technological landscape so so deep into their into their career and how much influence that they still have over other bands, even veteran bands. Like I know Lars Ulrich from Metallica talks about always making sure to go to see what U2 is doing because no doubt some aspect of it is going to feed into their forthcoming tours Yes, they definitely were the cutting edge in terms of that technology, and you can't think of any other band. Obviously, there's the bigger band. I don't. I've never seen a Coldplay show. I don't know how that works, but uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure they all have that technology. Um, oh, I'm sure they're even getting insider tips or even borrowing pe- people or personnel from from the tours. Right, well, we are we are coming to the end, and the end of you 2 why. And when it comes to the why, I suspect the answer to that question is a little bit harder to define than maybe when we had set out on this journey and had realised. But I think we've probably answered it in the conversations themselves. But to me, it's also very obvious that someone like Paul McGuinness is such a central figure in this whole relationship surviving for so long. And um, yeah, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts to throw on that pile as we come to the conclusion. Hmm. Well, I think there was a, it was, it was a relationship founded on a pretty honest dialogue between both, both, both you know, the band and myself. And in, and in the early days, uh, before we get to act on, it's essentially just me and, and the band having that relationship, having that, having that, that talk. Um, and I think they were, they knew that I would, um, I, as far as I'm concerned, um, I have a huge admiration for the four members of YouTube. Um, but I would not say we are bosom buddies and friends. Um, that, that 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 relationship was built around a working relationship. So I understood what I was there to do, and they understood that as well. So you're not well, spending. Well, maybe that's the why your your proximity to the band or your distance from the band 
could have been the thing that preserved the relationship and add to this the idea that you know you're not you're not an artist and I mean that in the nicest possible way with no disrespect like you you are a facilitator of 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 a bigger idea you are a, you are a part of a team so, so I mean maybe you you know you, you 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 could be defined as an artist but you're not an artist in the typical singular idea of an artist you're not coming in and saying here is how it's going to be I mean you're not a visionary whilst at the same time you have great ideas and you have like a vision for how things might be but it's always part of a collective serendipitous um, synergy and I think that you you can view you too as Bono Edge, Larry, Adam, Paul McGuinness, you, and then add whoever you want into that who's been with them for so long. Like it, you too is is bigger than the four, four guys. Yeah, because I'm not a designer in the same way that say Vaughan Oliver was, where no. you have a distinctive House style, a style yeah. that is carried across from band to band and album to album. Mm-hmm. Um, my role was to get to the core of what they wanted to achieve um, graphically and musically and try and portray that on the cover, which is not necessarily thinking that I'm, you know, the top designer in Ireland, the top person to do that, but simply understanding what what I needed to do and how I would go about doing that. And I think that, as we've talked before, the fact that several of these albums are, are now, you pick up most books on album cover designs, you will find one, maybe two U2 albums within the top 100 or whatever it is. Um, and that's really because those that balance worked at that particular time and created something that was quite a bit different. Well, I have this other thought as well, and it kind of pains me to say it or acknowledge it, but I feel like your your original or your initial background in uh, commercial art or advertising arts was very influential in how you then progressed through your career because you found this balance between you talk so often about finding the soul of the record and the soul of the band and, and advertising is inherently kind of soulless but you're also um, advertising a, a product or a service or a, sometimes an idea and that's not dissimilar to what you were doing with an album campaign the, the album is also a product like the soul of the album and the soul of the band are somewhat indefinable yet completely connected to the whole Thing, but I think also being able to just go, what are we selling? How do we sell it? Is a useful tool that you learn from from the advertising world. Yes, I mean my experience, uh, my total experience was going. I never went to art college or anything like that. I went from a practical ex- um, placement into uh, into advertising at a very early age. I, I joined an advertising agency very very. Early. I happened to be lucky in that I went into an agency that was considered to be probably the most creative in Ireland at that point in time with a a group head who was totally encouraging of ideas and, and things. So even if you're advertising something very mundane, like uh, that person, Phil Walsh, you know, won an award for a commercial about uh, match, matches in a matchbox. But in, it, he expressed something about matches in a very, very interesting, different way. And I suppose that had an influence on my way of thinking about how you do it. You have to take something that you know. And and as I said before, I'm not trying to do an album cover for me. I'm trying to do an album cover for them. So I have to find out what it is that 
sums up that particular time and, and place. And I think those albums from, from Boy to Pop have that sensibility about them. Okay, is there anything else you'd like to add? Any feelings you have before we ride off into the sunset? No, I just think I'm, I, I, I'm, I appreciate that people have enjoyed this series of listening to these these uh, stories. Um, obviously, there are other stories with other bands or other times that, that, are, that are interesting as well. But um, the fact that the people are interested in what I've done um, and I've achieved... I feel I've achieved something by having something I can look back and, and people do look back and they look back at the boy cover and, and, and it means a lot to them. It's, 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 it's like, I, I, I said it once before, it's like the Mona Lisa on a, on a tea towel. It's, it's a practical everyday place that these things are seen as, as it's, it's sitting against your wall or in your, in your record cabinet. But it does mean a lot to people. They do talk to you about it. They do talk about that album cover taken out brings them back to a time when they actually first heard that album and they first got into the ba- any particular band. And that, I think, is an amazing connection. Whereas you can be a high-ended artist and you can have something in the gallery and it might never be seen by more than a certain number of people. Um, the fact that millions of people... Well, it, it is hard to really begin to wrap your head around this and really fully fathom how how big this is. I mean, it's bigger than we could ever know. And it's just that I really think it's an incredible legacy to have. And I know you have this sense of humility about you, but um, I mean, I'm incredibly proud of our conversations, of your work, of everything that we've kind of... Um, captured in this conversation it's just it's it's pretty remarkable i think it does go beyond the pursuit of of the questions that we were trying to answer with this podcast in a way but but as you say to create something that has so much meaning for so many people that breaks beyond the idea of art or design or pop culture it's it's just an incredible legacy yeah well, we, there's there's one final story when we were staying with somebody, um, in in actually went back to Joshua Tree National Park thirty years after the al- doing the album cover or more, to just revisit those locations in, the, in that time and place. And we stayed with somebody who worked in Switzerland in the graphic industry, and he, as a young person in the agency said the the two bosses of this uh, prestigious Swiss agency were arguing about what was the best design in in the world at that time and one was arguing for various swiss um designs took them out and uh, the other partner took out a copy of acton baby and said this is the best design in the world um because i suppose we it was a grid system which is what the swiss invented but it's it's things that you would never normally uh, encounter uh, people saying that you that you realize that it had an impact and an impact way beyond uh, my own thinking and my own vision in, in what was there. So I don't pretend to be the, the, you know, the fastest gun in the West. I don't pretend to be a designer that's, who's better than anybody, anybody else, or any, or even in Ireland. Never mind that. I just did the best I could do, and I think that stands as a test of time. Yeah, and I think it's a good way to lead us out as well. And perhaps I'll just re- recall this one story around the time that you had retired in 2015. Um, you too had invited you and us over to Paris um, to celebrate your retirement and come see the show. And I, 
I imagine there was a, a party planned for afterwards. And of course, uh, this this never yeah. happened. This was the weekend of the terrorist attacks in Paris, which was a a horrific event, you know, deeply affected all of us. But at the same time, I, I always lamented the fact that that never happened in a way because... Yeah, to, 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 to acknowledge that relationship. Yeah. I think it, it just removed maybe a chance to have a celebration with the band and yourself for the time you spent together working on this on this legacy that we've been talking about over these last um, 10 or so episodes. Yeah, it would have been interesting, certainly. And, and um, uh, I suppose in, a, in an odd sort of way, um, that weekend we'll never forget for whatever the reason was. It's, it's yeah. one that will always be with us. Yeah. Okay, that is the end. We are sincerely grateful for you coming along this journey with us. It has been a very meaningful experience for, for me, for my father, and hopefully for, well, you too. Thank you for your feedback, your comments, your interest, your questions. So, on the way out, I'll remind you, stephenaveril.com check out the store we have some very special prints now available and of course you can follow him on instagram forward slash stephen averill design for some updates and we're still going to comb through the archive and post some bits and pieces as we go so stay tuned who knows what else we might find and um i am broadcasting to you from the first week of august here so if you're going to las vegas for the sphere enjoy if you do go to the desert to find the remnants of the Joshua tree, do take care. Thank you once again to Nadine, Bono, Adam, Larry and Edge and the good folk at Universal Music. All right, I'm Gareth Anton Averill. Over and out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.